Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. Before getting into today's episode, just for a quick plug, there's a great podcast called Beyond Binary Thinking, hosted by a group of guys who like to talk about all things philosophical, psychological, and political. They invited me on there a month or so ago, and we had a really good conversation about a lot of the things we've looked at in this podcast, Buddhism, philosophy, the simulation argument. If you're interested, then that episode's out now, and you'll find that on Beyond Binary Thinking. But to set the context for today's episode, the universe is around 13.8 billion years old. There are likely billions of Earth-like planets out there that could support life, and that's just in our own Milky Way galaxy. There are likely billions more galaxies throughout the universe too. In that case, where is everybody? Over lunch in the summer of 1950, that's precisely what the physicist Enrico Fermi asked his colleagues in a question that's now become known as the Fermi Paradox. What's going on is that when you consider the sheer size of the universe, coupled with its ancient age, you'd expect life to have developed not once, not twice, or even on a handful of occasions, but all over the universe. There are so many planets that have been around for so long that the odds are well in the favour of our having a great many neighbours. But when we look up to the stars, there's no one there. No evidence of intelligent life whatsoever. As far as we can tell, we're alone. So how do we reconcile those two thoughts? The exceedingly large probability of intelligent extraterrestrial life on the one hand, and the complete lack of evidence out there on the other. These two thoughts seem to contradict each other, but they also both seem to be true. So together they form the Fermi Paradox. Enrico Fermi wasn't the first person to ask this question, though he certainly popularised it, and since 1950 an awful lot of work has gone into trying to answer this puzzle. Some people have tried to argue that maybe actually life isn't so likely, and maybe it's no surprise that we're alone. And some people have tried to argue that there might really be extraterrestrials out there, but we just haven't found them yet. But ever since Fermi uttered this question 70 years ago, nobody has ever been able to get to the bottom of this mystery once and for all. Where is everybody? But this isn't just a puzzle for sci-fi nerds and alien enthusiasts. As it happens, the answer to the Fermi paradox might really matter. Some of the most popular explanations that people have come up with would actually have massive ramifications for the future prospects of our own civilization, and in ways you might not expect. So that's what I'm mainly going to look at in this episode. Firstly, just how the Fermi paradox works, and why we should expect to see aliens flying all over the Milky Way. But then, all the possible explanations as to why there doesn't seem to be anybody out there. One reaction that I found that people sometimes have when I speak about the Fermi paradox is to ask, might it not just be the case that it requires some kind of miracle for life to come about? Might it not just be the case that life is really rare, and that's why we haven't found evidence of extraterrestrial life? The idea here is that it doesn't matter how many galaxies, stars, planets are out there, because the probability of life ever coming about on any given planet is so low that it's really no surprise if we're alone in the universe. Maybe then there's no paradox at all. You'd expect there to be no more than one intelligent civilization in the universe. We're that one civilization, so job done, case closed. Well, that would make sense. But how do you reconcile that thought with the idea that many scientists share that there are likely untold numbers of intelligent civilizations out there? 
how can we make a meaningful prediction about how many intelligent civilizations we should expect to exist throughout the universe? It's a question the scientists have put a lot of thought into, and they've actually come up with a useful tool to answer this question. So in 1961, the scientist Frank Drake wrote what's now become known as the Drake Equation, which is a mathematical equation we can use to predict how many intelligent civilizations are likely out there. Now, the purpose of the equation isn't to yield some definite figure. We're obviously not going to be able to say, right, I've done the maths and I can declare that there are exactly 213 intelligent civilizations in the Milky Way and 728,000 in the observable universe. We're never going to approach that degree of certainty. Heck, there are still more than 100 uncontacted tribes on Earth, and probably even more undiscovered. Instead, what the Drake equation is more designed to do is to give us some ballpark figure, some approximation of roughly how many intelligent civilizations we can expect exist outside of our own planet. The way that the Drake equation works is that it specifies a list of different estimates that you'd need to make in order to be able to estimate the likely amount of intelligent civilizations out there that we could contact. So it draws on things like the amount of planets in our galaxy, how many of those planets could support life, the probability of life ever actually developing on any given suitable planet, and then the average length of time that civilizations survive. And once you've come up with your best estimate for all of these different factors, and there are some more factors as well, it yields a number which you can expect to be roughly the amount of contactable civilizations outside of Earth. And a lot of scientists agree, when you plug the numbers in, what you end up with is a really, really large number of potential civilizations. I mean, look, our best estimations of the number of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way galaxy that orbit a sun similar to our own sun tend to be in the tens of billions. And when you widen the parameters beyond the Milky Way to the rest of the observable universe, the number gets astronomically larger. Think of it this way. Imagine every single grain of sand on planet Earth well, there are probably many more habitable planets out there in the observable universe. And that's not any old lump of matter planet. They are planets that are similar to the Earth, orbiting a sun similar to our own sun, which could in theory harbour life. More than one for every grain of sand on Earth. Given any minute probability at all that life ever arises on such planets, you'd expect the universe to be teeming with intelligent life forms. And in such a busy universe, you'd expect there to be at least some kind of evidence of extraterrestrial life. You'd think it would be fairly obvious if we were living in some kind of a Rick and Morty universe. Even if these aliens didn't directly come to Earth and contact us, scientists today have come up with countless different ways in which we should expect to be able to detect the kinds of technologies that would likely be used by superintelligent civilizations. I mean, you might expect to see evidence of something like a Dyson Sphere? which is a hypothetical megastructure, it's um, like a big sphere that goes all the way around a star to harvest its energy output. Or you might see something like von Neumann probes, and what they are are self-replicating probes that could spread out across an entire galaxy in a relatively short period of time. Or you might see something like entire solar systems arranged at the will of an extraterrestrial civilization. We'd surely expect to see something. Frank Drake's original estimates yielded around 10 actively broadcasting civilizations just in our own galaxy. That would of course mean many, many more in the wider universe. And as we discover more and more suitable planets, other scientists have speculated that there might be many more intelligent civilizations. And bear in mind that when we're talking about these intelligent civilizations, 
The ones that the Drake equation posits are just the civilizations actively broadcasting with whom we might actually be able to communicate. We're not just talking about the alien equivalent of dolphins and monkeys. We're talking about extraterrestrials so advanced that we could communicate between planets. But yet we see no evidence of this. Solar systems and galaxies don't seem to have been rearranged to suit the wishes of their superintelligent guests. There's no evidence of any megastructures, the solar output of stars being harvested for energy, no sign of the natural order of things having been tampered with whatsoever. And it's not as if we haven't been looking. Hundreds of scientists have devoted their careers to searching for answers, and tens of millions of dollars are spent every year looking for signals, but to no avail. Having said that, there was one very interesting incident in August 1977 that I think is worth bringing up. An astronomer, Jerry Edman, was reviewing the data picked up by a telescope in Ohio State University. This telescope it was built to detect radio waves from outer space, and it was being used in the search for extraterrestrial life, the thought being that radio waves offer an easy way of transmitting information, so we'd expect advanced extraterrestrials to know how to do that. But in amongst the jumble of data, there was something really quite strange that made Jerry sit up and take note. Hidden in plain sight, with a constant flow of background noise beforehand, and a constant flow of background noise afterwards, was a very loud wave of traffic coming from somewhere around the Sagittarius constellation. The telescope was pointing in that direction for 72 seconds, and for the entire 72 seconds, the signal was loud. It didn't carry any discernible message, but the signal was intense, and it covered a very low bandwidth. It's not the kind of thing you pick up regularly, not at all. So in his red pen, Jerry scribbled WOW on the sheet and scurried off to show his colleagues, with his annotation on the sheet being what's given the signal its name, the WOW signal. Since its discovery, there have been loads of astronomers piping up to offer their explanation. Some people think it could have just been a man-made signal that reflected back to Earth off a piece of space debris. Some think it might have been no more than a glitch in the telescope. Others think this might be a plausible pointer in the direction of extraterrestrial life. But there's no consensus on where the signal came from, and despite their best efforts, nobody has been able to track this signal down again. That's about the closest we've come to finding some kind of evidence that there might be life out there, but to be honest, it's a stretch to really recognise it as evidence at all. So, with no compelling evidence of intelligent life beyond Earth, we're left in the predicament that Fermi recognised. The best estimates, given the knowledge we have of the cosmos and the development of life, it seems very likely that intelligent life should have developed many times over throughout our galaxy, and even more times throughout the universe. Yet, we see nothing. So what's going on? I think it's worth being absolutely clear now, there's no unanimously agreed upon explanation to the Fermi Paradox. There are scores and scores of possible explanations, some more likely than others, but none of which are clearly the right answer. In thinking about the possible explanations, I find it useful to break them down into three categories. But within the first category, you'd say that both components of the Fermi paradox seem right, so the probability of intelligent life emerging is really high enough that you would expect it to happen many times over on many planets. Also, that there really is no life out there. So there must be some kind of explanation why. But then, according to the second and third kinds of explanations, you might want to reject one of the two prongs on the paradox. So firstly, you might want to say that actually the scientists are wrong, 
the probability of life emerging is very, very low. So low that we should actually expect to be the only intelligent civilization. Or within the third category, you might want to reject the assumption that we really are alone in the universe, and maybe there's a reason why we haven't discovered intelligent life quite yet. To be honest, it seems to me, with my uneducated, unscientific perspective, that the first category really doesn't seem very likely. So if this were the case, it really would be true that the probabilities suggest that there are very likely a number of other intelligent civilizations in our galaxy, but that we happen to just be the only one. If this were the case, the explanation would then have to be that, despite the overwhelming likelihood that other intelligent life forms should evolve throughout our galaxy, by chance, no other civilizations have quite arisen yet, and we just happen to be the first. Because if there were going to be, say, 12 intelligent civilizations in our galaxy who reach a spacefaring age, well, I guess one of them would have to come first. You know, someone has to be the first one to develop, and then all the others might come about at some point afterwards. So it happened to be us who evolved first, and I guess the people who defend this way of thinking might want to say that doesn't seem so strange. Well, in actual fact, I'd probably want to say that that would seem rather strange indeed. Because, you see, the Fermi Paradox isn't just pointing out the vastness of the universe, and concluding that intelligent civilizations should arise at some point. Rather, it's pointing out the vastness of the universe, coupled with the age of the universe. And given that the universe has been around for such a long period of time already, and how long it took for Homo sapiens to develop, we weren't exactly quick to get on the scene. It seems very strange that we should be the first. Think of it this way. Planet Earth is four and a half billion years old. Yet there are planets we've discovered elsewhere in the Milky Way galaxy that are over 12 billion years old. It would seem awfully surprising that such a young planet as the Earth would have generated intelligent life faster than any other planet, when some of the others had an 8 billion year head start. And even on Earth, it's not as if the creatures that have evolved on Earth have walked a particularly fast-tracked route to being able to explore space. Homo sapiens evolved from their ancestors sometime around 200,000 years ago, while dinosaurs walked the Earth during the Mesozoic era between 230 and 65 million years ago. Maybe there's no reason to think that human-level intelligence would have served the dinosaurs an evolutionary advantage, but still, when you compare the timescales, if it took Homo sapiens only 200,000 years to go from walking the jungle to walking the moon, then planet Earth saw hundreds of millions of years of missed opportunities to develop intelligent life before Homo sapiens came along. If it only took us 200,000 years, many creatures on Earth would have had hundreds of millions of years to get to the level we're at now, which is surely enough time for intelligent life to evolve somewhere else in the galaxy too. Now, I guess we can't completely write off the possibility that humans just happen to be the first civilization, and that we can expect many more to come. But at least for me, this does seem like we'd have to assume that humans came about very fast indeed, that we've developed faster than any of our intergalactic competitors who might be somewhere along the conveyor belt of evolution right now. And this doesn't really seem to fit with what we know about the time it took for Homo sapiens to get to where we are now. So what most of the explanations of the Fermi paradox prioritise is rejecting one of the two prongs that go into the paradox. On the one hand, the probability of intelligent life developing, and on the other, the seeming fact that aliens don't exist yet. 
And this is where the Fermi paradox starts to get really juicy. As we've said, a lot of the best estimates seem to suggest that there should be a great many intelligent civilizations elsewhere in our galaxy and beyond, and we'd expect at least some of these to have developed to a stage where we'd be able to recognise them by now, or at least to notice some of the effects of some of the things they might have done in space. But the fact they don't seem to be there, that might point towards something really quite troubling. One thing that a few scientists have pointed towards to explain why there don't seem to be any other intelligent civilizations out there, and this is probably one of, if not the most renowned theory, is what they call the Great Filter Theory. So according to this theory, the Drake Equation has things more or less correct, and when we make our estimates about the number of planets in the universe, the probability of basic life arising, and all the other estimates that go into the Drake Equation, they might be accurate. But according to the Great Filter Theory, the Drake Equation is omitting something crucial that explains why we haven't therefore found life beyond Earth. Somewhere along the trajectory, from habitable planet to spacefaring civilization, the theory says that there must be some great filter, some massive obstacle that almost every single civilization fails to overcome. And this great filter could occur anywhere along the timescale. It might be the case that the jump from single cell to multicellular life is something that almost never happens. It might be the case that almost no civilizations who reach the stage that we're at now manage to develop to such a stage where they can actually go exploring the galaxy. It was an economist, Robin Hansen, who came up with this theory, and he sets out nine different stages that life forms have to pass through before they can go on to colonise the observable universe. So to begin with, you'll need the right kind of star system with a suitable planet in its Goldilocks zone. That's the first step. But after that, on that planet, you'll need basic reproductive molecules to start developing. That's the second step. And then you have a few steps after that, like the jump from simple single-cell life to complex single-cell life, and the jump from multi-cell life to animals who are able to use tools, right up until the final step, which is the step from humans, as we are now, to beings who are capable of colonising the observable universe. Now, if it transpired that one of these steps was very, very difficult to achieve, for example, if multi-cell life almost never developed up to the stage where there were tool-wielding animals, then this would mean that in actual fact, it's no surprise that the universe isn't teeming with futuristic aliens and spaceships, because almost no planet harbours beings who are able to develop that far. So this would resolve the Fermi paradox. It would turn out that in actual fact, intelligent life capable of exploring the universe isn't nearly as probable as the Drake equation would have us believe, because in actual fact, there's a great filter that prevents almost anyone from getting that far. This idea has gained a bit of traction, but before long, a few people began to realise that if this were true, if there really is some great filter that almost no civilization manages to overcome, this might have some really troubling consequences. You see, this great filter would have to either lie behind us which would be somewhere along the evolutionary path that we've already overcome, maybe just by some great luck. Or, it would lie somewhere in front of us. And if it lay in front of us, this would mean that for some reason, there's such a great obstacle, so large as to render it almost impossible to overcome, that would prevent us from ever being able to go on and explore the galaxy. So, if the reason that we've never found any evidence of alien life 
is that there's some great filter that prevents life forms from going on to explore space, we'd have to really hope that this great filter lies behind us, that it's something that we've already overcome. Because otherwise, the end of humanity might be closer than we'd thought. And it's a worrying thought, because it seems quite conceivable that this great filter does lie somewhere in front of us. The idea has been raised that perhaps when civilizations develop technologies with which they're able to cause the death of their entire species, that they almost never manage to use these technologies safely. And you can imagine why this might be the case. When you consider the way that species evolve, they acquire new abilities over hundreds of thousands of years to adapt to their environment and ensure the long-term survival of the species. But once we develop technologies that could wipe us all out, it's not as if we're capable of evolving into a species who can use these technologies responsibly. We can't hone this ability through trial and error over hundreds of thousands of years, because if it goes wrong just once, we're wiped out. So you might imagine that life faces its inevitable demise, when it evolves to aggressively conquer its environment throughout the development of that species over hundreds of thousands of years, but then every time when they finally acquire the ability to cause their own demise, they can't tone down their aggression, and they can't avoid actually bringing about the end of their own species. So with the advent of AI, the invention of nuclear weapons, and the fact that we're already putting such a burden on our atmosphere, you could see the ways in which this might apply to us. And this isn't exactly a new thought. Since 23rd January this year, the Doomsday Clock, which predicts how close humanity is to extinction, has been adjusted to 100 seconds to midnight. Meaning that if the lifespan of the human race were compressed onto a 24-hour clock, we'd be just 100 seconds away from extinction. Of course, the Great Filter could lie behind us, and that would probably be a pretty good thing. It would mean that somewhere along our history, maybe as far back as the emergence of simple single-cell life, we just got extraordinarily lucky, and managed to jump over a hurdle that almost no one is able to get past. Unfortunately though, without any evidence of where this great filter might be, we have no way of knowing whether we've already made it past the filter, or whether we need to get ready to work past it in the future. As we venture further into space and learn more about other planets, we might start to get a better idea about where this great filter might be. In fact, in 2008, Nick Bostrom, who formulated the simulation argument that we looked at in the last episode, he wrote a paper about an upcoming probe that NASA was sending to Mars. At the time, a lot of people were getting excited, hoping that we might find some signs of life. But Bostrom had thought about this in the light of the Fermi paradox, and he pointed out, it could be a really, really bad thing if we were able to find some basic signs of life on Mars. Let's say, for example, that we found signs of multi-cell life on Mars. What would that mean? Well, we'd have pretty good reason to think that it's therefore not too difficult for multi-cell life to emerge. I mean, we'd have seen it happen on our own planet, and we'd have seen it happen on one of our closest neighbours too. So that would wipe out a number of the possible great filters that lay before us, We'd know, for example, that it can't be too improbable for reproductive molecules to emerge, and then for simple single-cell life to develop too. Because if it were that improbable, well, it certainly wouldn't have happened on two planets right next to each other. And if it's not that improbable at all, then it can't be a great filter. And the lower the number of great filters that could possibly lay before us on our evolutionary timescale, 
the greater the chance that we might have a great filter awaiting us on the horizon. I think that all things considered, the great filter theory sounds pretty plausible. It would explain why we haven't found any signs of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, while still allowing us to retain our best scientific predictions about all the factors that go into the Drake equation. We'd understand why we haven't made contact yet, even though the number of planets is so vast and the age of the universe is so great. We just want to hope that we've already made it past the Great Filter. There's an organisation set up in Oxford University called the Future of Humanity Institute. I think I might have mentioned them once or twice already in previous episodes. And they do some fascinating research into the kinds of futures that we might expect to await the human race and what kinds of things we can do to ensure that our long-run future is as bright as possible. And as an aside, Nick Bostrom actually heads this organisation, and Robin Hansen, who came up with a great filter theory, works for them too. Well, they have another group of researchers, Toby Ord, Eric Drexler and Anders Sandberg, who were pretty concerned about the great filter theory. These guys thought, wow, looking at the Fermi paradox and the possibility of some great filter... This is pretty scary. There seems like there might be some chance that humanity might face some real problems in the coming decades or centuries. And this is what their research is all about, looking at the possible futures humankind might face and trying to figure out how we can steer our trajectory towards the best futures. So they did some research on the Fermi Paradox, trying to figure out if we have anything to be worried about. But quickly, they identified what they thought to be a glaring hole in the paradox, specifically in the applications of the Drake equation, which people use to show that there are likely many, many more intelligent civilizations out there. See, they pointed out that when scientists use the Drake equation to make these kinds of predictions, the way that they often do so is that they take each component of the Drake equation, like, let's say, the probability that any given Earth-like planet will go on to support some kind of basic life, and they make their best prediction, and they assign it some definite value. But the trouble is, there's a lot of uncertainty about what kinds of values we should be assigning these different components. So take the fraction of Earth-like planets that actually go on to support basic life. In Frank Drake's original equation, he assigned this value 100% chance, meaning that he thought that every planet that could support some kind of basic life would eventually go on to do so. But today scientists aren't so sure. There are plausible estimates that range from 0.1% likelihood to 10% and higher. It's difficult to know what kinds of values to input. It's not as if we have much of a sample size to go off here. It's not as if we've observed the entire lifespan of thousands of Earth-like planets, and we can know exactly how many of them go on to support basic life. The Earth is all we really have to go off. What scientists had been doing up until this stage was basically inputting their best guess and using that to figure out how many intelligent civilizations are likely out there right now. But according to this team of researchers, that's not going to yield a very accurate figure. Because if you're not sure whether to input a value of 0.1% or 10%, it doesn't work to just pick the number in the middle and say 5%, because if the true number of Earth-like planets who do go on to sustain life turns out to be much higher or much lower than 5%, our final figure won't be very accurate at all, and it doesn't reflect these kinds of uncertainties. So what Ord, Drexler and Sandberg suggested we do is substitute the point estimates which are the definite numbers that we'd been using up until this point, 
so the likes of 5%, 6% or 10%, and instead use some fancy maths to incorporate our uncertainties into the Drake equation instead. So for each estimate that we make, we input a range of possible values rather than just a single number, in order to deliver a much more reliable final figure. And as it happens, when you approach the Drake equation in this more sophisticated way, you end up concluding that it might not be surprising if we do happen to be the only intelligent civilization in our galaxy or even in the universe. It turns out that it's quite likely that we're alone. Of course, there's room for uncertainty here, because the whole point is that the figures they use to reach this conclusion are uncertain themselves. So to be specific, what they ended up concluding is that the probability that we're alone in the Milky Way galaxy is actually likely to be between 53% and 99.6%. And the probability that we're alone in the observable universe is plausibly between 39% and 85%. So if these guys are right, those who came up with the Fermi paradox might have been wrong to suppose that there must be countless other intelligent civilizations out there. Those suppositions were based upon very uncertain estimates, and in actual fact, it's entirely plausible that we might be joined by other civilizations in our galaxy and in the universe, but it's also quite possible, if not quite likely, that we're alone. So when we look into the stars and we find nothing, we shouldn't take this as evidence that there's some kind of great filter awaiting us. Maybe we should just take it as evidence that the probability of intelligent life emerging is very, very small, and that it's no surprise that we really are alone. If they're right, you'd think this is probably a good thing for the human race. If there's no great filter and the only reason that we're alone is that the development of life up to the point we're currently at is quite improbable, then there's no reason why we can't keep on developing into the future. There's no longer such a worry that there might be an impeding obstacle that's almost impossible to overcome. But at the same time, if these guys are right, if life really is so improbable and we are alone... This doesn't come without consequences. As with anything futuristic and scientific, Elon Musk has weighed in on this issue, and he pointed out that if we really are alone, this places an enormous burden of responsibility on us. See, if we were to go extinct, this wouldn't just mean the extinction of humankind, this could mean the extinction of all intelligent life in the universe. If the future existence of any intelligent life at all depends on us spreading out and colonising other planets. That's an enormous pressure on ourselves not to inadvertently wipe ourselves out. When you consider how much longer the universe is likely to carry on existing, and how far humans could theoretically spread out, given enough time, whether or not our civilization survives to a spacefaring age could make the difference between whether trillions and trillions of people come into existence or not. The fate of the universe is in our hands. So, as Musk says, if we're alone, the duty is ours to spread out to other planets in order to sustain life and keep the flame of consciousness alight. With this reapplication of the Drake equation, I think the maths here seems pretty robust and nuanced, and from my experience with the Future of Humanity Institute, I trust these guys to come up with a well-informed conclusion. But as I said earlier, the Fermi paradox does remain a mystery, and there's no unanimous verdict on how best to solve it. When Ord, Drexler and Sandberg released this paper, it created some waves in the scientific community, but it didn't convince everyone. 
I mean, there are some people, for example, who always treat this kind of argument with suspicion. They think that this paper is just another example of people trying to come up with arguments to show why the human race is special, that we're unique and we did extraordinarily well to evolve this far. And there are people who think that this kind of argument is arrogant and just another example of people placing people at the centre of the universe. So if you're not sold by this paper, if you think that actually you would expect intelligent life to develop elsewhere in the universe, and if you're not sold by any of the other explanations we've looked at, if you don't think that there's some kind of great filter that wipes everyone out before they get that far, and if you also think it seems strange that we just happen to be the first of many future civilizations to venture out into space, then you might still be a bit puzzled. Where is everyone then? If so, then you might be sold by the third way of overcoming the Fermi paradox, which is by rejecting the second part of the paradox and saying, maybe there really are aliens out there. I mean, it's not as if we know for sure that we're alone. As I mentioned earlier, you might expect to see some evidence of alien activity if they were out there. Maybe self-replicating drones or giant Dyson spheres, but at the same time, maybe not. After all, an absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And if any of you like to nerd out on sci-fi stuff, you might find these explanations kind of fun. Now, there are a lot of possible theories out there about different ways in which there might be extraterrestrial life out there that we just haven't discovered quite yet. David Brin wrote about 70 or so different possibilities in just a single paper, so I won't mention all of them, just some of the ones I thought looked the most interesting and sounded the most compelling. So within these theories that try to show how alien life might exist elsewhere in the universe, even though we haven't seen evidence quite yet, there's a few different categories that these different theories can fall into. And one of them could be that alien life might have evolved somewhere else in our galaxy, or somewhere else in the observable universe, but it might have developed in such a way that would remain undetectable to us. Anders Sandberg, who contributed to the paper we looked at earlier that pointed out that intelligent life might not be so common at all, has also pursued this line of thought, and he's written about something that he calls the estivation hypothesis. According to this idea, intelligent extraterrestrial civilizations would have every reason not to be gallivanting around the universe in giant spaceships and harvesting the universe's resources. What they'd likely much prefer to do is to sleep. Now, this isn't because extraterrestrials are likely to be lazy or love a good nap. The idea at the core of this is that as time goes on and as the universe expands, the universe gets cooler. And as the universe gets cooler, the energy cost of running computational processes gets lower. It requires less energy to do things. So if what extraterrestrial civilizations want to do is run lots of computational processes for whatever reason... What they'd be better off doing is waiting a long time, perhaps even billions of years into the future, where they'll be able to run many more computational processes than they would if they tried now. And there's lots of reasons they might want to do this. One example might be that if they develop the power to build artificial worlds or simulations, by waiting a few billion years, maybe by using something like cryonics to preserve themselves for the future, whatever techniques they might have developed, they'd be able to run many many more simulations or build many many more artificial worlds than if they'd be able to if they began today. In fact, to get to grips with the kind of scale we're talking about here, the difference is so great that if you had the equivalent of the mass energy of planet Earth to run computational processes with, and if you waited until the universe reached its coldest point, 
you'd have as much computational power then as if you'd used the entire observable universe as raw material for computation today. That's how much reward you can get for waiting a few billion years. The scale is just mind-bending here, and it doesn't require a great degree of imagination to think of all the incredible things we could do with all that computational power. The thought being, then, that maybe the chance of extraterrestrial life is as high as we'd predicted, and maybe there really are aliens out there, but once they get to a certain point, they just recognise that they can get a lot more bang for their buck by biding their time until the end of the universe. But going down the same avenue, thinking of the potential to build artificial worlds, this could offer an explanation in itself as to where all the aliens have got to. So going well into the realms of sci-fi, one example of what this might look like is something called a matryoshka brain. So you know those little Russian dolls where you open it and inside there's a smaller doll which you can open to find another doll and this keeps on going? Well, they're called matryoshka dolls and that's where the name comes from. But what a matryoshka brain is, is a sphere that's built around a star to harvest its entire energy output, like a Dyson sphere. And this could be used to run something like a massive amount of simulations or virtual worlds. But outside the core layer of the matryoshka brain, the computing would give off large amounts of waste heat. So another sphere is built around there to generate more computing power from that waste heat. And this carries on going. You build a load of different spheres around a star to harvest all of its heat output and all of the waste heat too, to run massive amounts of simulations. We don't know for sure whether building a matryoshka brain or something similar would be something that super advanced aliens might want to do, but it seems within the realms of possibility to imagine that they'd want to do something like that. If you assume, for example, that their ultimate goal is to create as many happy lives as possible, then generating huge swathes of artificial realities where they can all live blissful, almost infinitely long virtual lives, this could seem like an attractive prospect. And if they did so, this would explain why we don't see them zooming around the universe in their spaceships, Maybe they're busy zooming around their artificial realities. Or, as we briefly touched upon in the last episode, if extraterrestrials didn't want to build simulations themselves, maybe they'd have found a way of busting out of the simulation we're already in. But in all seriousness, those kinds of considerations could maybe explain why we haven't discovered extraterrestrial life quite yet. It might be the case that a world brimming with alien life isn't a Rick and Morty-like universe, Maybe it's more like a still, silent universe where all the action is going on in the supercomputers in outer space. So those explanations of the Fermi Paradox are built upon the idea that extraterrestrial life might develop in such a way that it remains undetected. It might not be at all obvious if there were aliens out there building simulations or sleeping for billions of years because they wouldn't be leaving so much of a trace. But going down a different route now, Another group of explanations could say that alien life certainly is discoverable, but that we just haven't developed the technologies to find them yet. I mean, maybe it's arrogant of us to suppose that there's a paradox at all. Sure, you might find a high probability that extraterrestrial life lives in abundance throughout the Milky Way, but why should the fact that we, with our incredibly limited technologies and with our rudimentary methods of gazing into space, have any chance at all of detecting these civilizations? In fact, you might find it quite arrogant at the outset to assume that we'd be at all capable of realising if there were alien civilizations out there. 
We've spoken about some of the things we might expect to see if there were intelligent civilizations spawning throughout our galaxy. Dyson spheres, self-replicating probes, matryoshka brains. But these are all just going off the comparatively very basic level of technological maturity that we've reached so far. It might well be the case that alien technology and the kinds of megastructures that they might build would be completely unrecognisable to us. I mean, we might have already seen them, but describe them in terms of some other natural phenomena because they wouldn't fit our preconception of what man-made or alien-made technology looks like. To make a parallel argument, think of the uncontacted tribes currently living in places like the Amazon Basin and their level of technological understanding. And then think about the powerful international radio and television traffic that flows through their villages. The fact that they don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that they haven't yet developed the technology to perceive all the signs of life all around them. And equally, maybe we can't write off that aliens really are out there, maybe closer than we imagine, but they've developed in such a radically different way to ourselves that we just don't recognise them or their technologies. So we've looked at explanations grounded on the idea that alien life might have developed such that it's undetectable, or secondly, that we're just not capable of detecting them. But maybe a third, and fairly similar possibility, could be that there's a reason why they don't want us to discover them. Like we've said before, the Fermi paradox arises from our assumption that if alien life were out there, we'd have found signs of it by now. But when you think harder about it, it doesn't seem so obvious. I mean, one way of thinking about it is, Either extraterrestrial life is at a somewhat similar stage of technological development to ourselves or somewhere behind us, or they're somewhere in front of us. If they were at a similar stage to where we're at now, or somewhere behind us, they probably wouldn't leave enough of a trace that we could spot them across the galaxy. Or on the other hand, if they were much more technologically mature than us, they may well be entirely capable of concealing themselves from our beady gaze should they so wish. And this suggestion isn't without grounding. There are lots of interesting reasons why aliens might want to remain hidden. Quite a few people have spoken about how this might be the case, and a lot have centred around the idea that, for various reasons, there might be some kind of galactic agreement that advanced civilizations don't interfere with backwards or emerging civilizations, as we might be considered. So a few different ways in which this might be the case. Some people defend the zoo hypothesis which says that we might be living in a kind of galactic zoo or nature reserve where other intelligent civilizations have agreed to let us evolve and develop organically, without any outside interference. Maybe because they've seen enough civilizations develop and fall after they've been contacted, enough to know that a natural development is the best way to go. Alternatively, you've got the laboratory hypothesis, which suggests that the Earth has remained uncontacted because we're the subject of some kind of experiment and they don't want to interfere with the results. What this kind of experiment might be, I don't know, but it would explain why they've left us to our own devices. Or finally, other people have come up with the planetarium hypothesis. This one's particularly out there. It speculates that for whatever reason, other intelligent life forms have decided to trick us into thinking that there's no intelligent life beyond Earth. So what they've done is simulate outer space for us, render the world beyond our own solar system to look desolate, silent and empty, and it would be as if the Earth were in some kind of simulated planetarium, whereas in actual fact it's buzzing with life, with extraterrestrials everywhere, 
but like in The Truman Show, they're deceiving us into thinking that we're alone. Again, why they might want to do this, I don't know. We can't know. But one obvious answer might be that contacting us or letting us know that they exist might be very dangerous in one form or another. I mean, we don't need to look any further than Earth itself to speculate why this might be the case. Throughout human history, it's often been a disastrous affair when different civilizations meet. Maybe there's too great a chance of aggression and war that our intergalactic neighbours might want to avoid. But war isn't the only way that contact could prove dangerous. Even on Earth, it's often warned that making first contact with tribes who have lived apart from the rest of civilization for millennia could expose them to various viruses that they haven't developed an immunity to. And the likes of influenza, measles and chickenpox have been known to be big killers of discovered tribal people. If you extrapolate that thought throughout the universe, who knows what kinds of viruses contact could expose us to? But one thing I read prior to recording this episode is that biological viruses aren't the only things we'd have to worry about. Just as much disaster could be caused by computer viruses being passed between civilizations who have no idea how to tackle them, or even infection from ideas that hadn't been conceived of within a given civilization that could prove to be disastrous to them should they discover it. There are lots of potential threats that could face us, but that could also face other civilizations should they make contact with us. And it seems quite possible that they might want to remain out of sight for the time being. As I've said, there's no conclusion I can reach at the end of this episode, because ultimately the Fermi Paradox is still a paradox, and we're not entirely sure what it points to. Maybe we really are just the first civilization to find a way out of their own planet. Maybe life is really rare and there's some great filter awaiting us. Or maybe we've already surpassed the great filter. Maybe there'll be no more civilizations after us, and we really are a one in a trillion civilization. Or maybe aliens really are among us, but we just haven't found them yet. It's not quite clear what the right answer is, but I think it's also not quite clear what we should even be hoping for. I'm sure most of you listening, like me, have spent at least a bit of time during your life fantasising what alien life might look like, what it might be like to contact an alien civilization, and I've certainly hoped that we'd discover life during my lifetime. It would be absolutely fascinating, and equally it would feel kind of uneasy to think that we were alone in the almost infinite expanses of the universe. And if we were alone, it would put an awful lot of pressure on us to carry on existing, lest we become responsible for literally the end of life in the universe forever. But thinking back to some of the arguments that we've looked at today, there might be good reason to hope that, that we really are alone. If there were many other less advanced life forms scattered around throughout the universe, and we're right in noticing that there doesn't seem to be any more intelligent life, this could mean that there's a reason no other life forms have found a way of colonising the universe, and we might have a great filter waiting just around the corner. Or if the extraterrestrial life we do discover in the future happens to be very intelligent. There are lots of ways, some we've thought of and I'm sure many more that we haven't, in which this could pose a massive danger to the future of the human race. Whichever explanation you find most plausible, and whichever outcome you find yourself wishing for, hopefully you can find solace in the fact that ultimately there's probably nothing you can do about it either way, and it's still going to be the weekend on Friday. Thanks for listening to this month's episode. I'll be back on the first Monday of June with an episode on life extension and how we might be able to bring about a future in which we can transcend our physical bodies and live lives of infinitely more value. And starting from next month's episode, 
Searching for its patrons will have access to each episode three days early. For you, the episode will be released on Patreon on the previous Friday, so you'll have all weekend to listen to the episode before it's out officially. If you'd like to become a patron, subscriptions start at just $1 a month, and you can find the show's page on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Thanks again for those of you who have supported the show by signing up on Patreon or by leaving a review on your podcast app of choice. And I'll see you in June. Thank you.